Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Show with Brian Hyde. That would be me. Thank you so much for joining us, whether you're catching the live broadcast or whether you're catching the podcast. Thanks for being a part of our growing audience. And I hope to make it worth your while today. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to see the silver lining here, but this is a pretty good time to be a commentator. Not uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, because everything is going so well that all we have to do is talk about the weather or sports, but simply because there are so many truly interesting, maybe even a little bit uh, scary things going on that, uh, yeah, it, it feels like job security. And that's not that I wish for crazy stuff to happen, but boy, here we go. Yesterday was uh, was one of those days. I think a lot of us are going to look back on it, and, uh, and we're going to say, "Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember the day they declared the uh, coronavirus pandemic because that's what the World Health Organization formally declared yesterday." And there was some very interesting news that followed. President uh, Trump did a, uh, a televised address to the nation last night, and uh, is as part of the solution, he is going to be suspending air travel between the U.S. and Europe for 30 days, starting at the end of this week. Crazy stuff. As, as luck would have it, my daughter, who lives in Germany, has some friends visiting from here in the States who are scheduled to fly out on Monday. So their vacation may have just been extended by an extra month. And, of course, that, uh, that means, well, some unintended consequences. Uh, my wife and my kids... Just popped over to the grocery store last night. To, they, they went to get a treat. Okay, I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but there was a time when we didn't go to the grocery store to hoard toilet paper, but simply because, oh, yeah, we need to pick up a gallon of milk, and, uh, hey, why don't we grab a treat for the family while we're here? They came back home, and, and it was my wife and two kids. All of their eyes were wide. They were just like, you would not believe what's going on at the grocery store. And they said not only was it, it was nine o'clock at night, it was packed, absolutely packed. People pulling two shopping carts, one after the other. I mean, filled to heaping. They were just grabbing everything they could. And uh, now understand, they're not running around screaming. But my wife said, you know, there's there's a look in their eyes. You can see they are right there on the verge of panic. And that's a pretty scary thought, right? I mean, I look. I, don't, I have no intention of going to a grocery store for the next couple of weeks just because I kind of want to let the, the panic die down, let, to, let this become the new normal so that people stop freaking out. But uh, I can't imagine what it's like today at places like Costco or, or Walmart. You know, the, the toilet paper run, the great toilet paper shortage, that, uh, that was something to behold. But I suspect that after the news of yesterday, uh, it's probably going to get much worse. Oh, by the way, in other news, you know, and this was, I, I think I mentioned this yesterday, the LDS Church will be holding its semi-annual general conference without attendees in its massive conference center, which can hold like 30,000 people. It's, yeah, we, we live in very interesting times, and, and, and it keeps getting weirder. And, and in fact, I want to I share with you a commentary from, uh, from Caitlin Johnstone, because she has, I think, a very solid explanation for, for why it's so strange and, and how it's actually kind of a good thing. So we'll start on a positive note today. She says, in an attempt to contain the COVID-19 pandemic, 
The President of the United States has just announced a 30-day travel ban between the U.S. and Europe. The super-rich are flying off to disaster bunkers, and the NBA has just suspended its season. And she says, if this is the first you're hearing of this, go ahead and read it again if you need to. This is all news that came out minutes prior to this writing. And she says there may have been many other immense news stories by the time you read it. But she says this is a level of disruption that the world hasn't seen in generations. Normal things that had been a routine part of people's entire lives are just not there for them now. Whether it's normal socializing, watching the basketball game, or even buying toilet paper at the store. Now, you may remember, I shared an article of hers last month called 2020 is going to get much crazier. Prioritize your mental health. And this is a quote from what she said back then. She says, as I said back in November, things are going to get weirder and weirder throughout the foreseeable future. We're coming to a point in history where the only reliable pattern is the disintegration of patterns. And 2020 has come storming out of its corner, swinging for the fences, working to establish this pattern with extreme aggression. We're not going to hit a point of stability or normality this year. We're going to see things get crazier and crazier and crazier. Now, she tempers this by saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know it's going to be nuts. And then she says, and, if, and by Jove, if that isn't proving true in some bizarre and unexpected ways, I certainly wasn't expecting the coronavirus to play a role in that unpatterning at the time. In fact, she says, I was dismissive of it when it first emerged. But we're seeing a disruption in collective patterns and routines like nothing most of us can recall. And going back to her column in November, she said, I often hear people in my line of work saying, man, we're going to look back on all this crazy crap and think about how absolutely weird it was. And her response was, no, we won't, because it's only going to get weirder. It's only going to get weirder in that because that's what it looks like when old patterns start to fall away. She says the human mind is conditioned to look for patterns in order to establish a baseline of normal expectations upon which to work out future actions. This perceptual framework exists to give us safety and security, so disruptions in the patterns upon which it is based often feel weird, threatening, and scary. They make us feel insecure because our cognitive tool for staying in control of our well-being has a glitch in it. And when you're talking about a species that has consistently been patterned toward its own destruction, through a dis though rather, she says, a disruption of patterns is actually a good thing. She says our ecocidal, warmongering tendencies have brought us to a point that now has us staring down the barrel of our own extinction. And that's where we are surely headed if we continue patterning along the behavioral trajectory we've been on. Only a drastic change of patterns can change that trajectory. And she says we are seeing a change of patterns. Now, she warns this great unpatterning is going to continue in many wild and unexpected ways, and things are going to keep getting stranger. All of humanity's problems are the result of our collective conditioning patterns throughout history. And if I could just offer a little annotation here. She's talking about the way that we've all collectively been conditioned to see things and expect things to be normal. And her point is when there is pattern disruption, there's opportunity for pattern divergence. Where there is movement, there are gaps. Where there are gaps... There's an opportunity for light to get through. So here's what this means to us. The clear eyed rebels job, therefore, is to watch for opportunities to help lead us as a collective along a brand new, healthier trajectory. There's no way to know in advance what those opportunities will look like because predictability is premised on pattern consistency. But they will appear from unpredictable and unanticipated 
new directions. Whenever you see a gap, she says, your job is to pour as much truth and wisdom and health into it as you can possibly muster. She says, watch for the gaps in the armor of the establishment oppression machine. Watch for gaps in the deluded nature of our society. Watch for gaps in the patterns and then use your wisdom and creativity to assist them in unpatterning as the opportunity presents itself. 2020 is just getting warmed up. And her advice is eyes wide, beautiful people. Now, that's a pretty positive take, considering all the stuff that's going on. And and uh, frankly, I, you know, the uncertainty of it gets to me. I've had a little hitch in my stomach for the last, well, I was going to say the last couple of days, but it's actually been for the last few weeks. I've kind of been watching with interest and, and a small amount of concern of where is this leading? After hearing my wife describe her experience at the grocery store yesterday, that hitch in my stomach is is becoming more of a knot. And it's simply because I can see that uh, we may not be right there, you know, in panic with people, you know, losing their minds. I don't as far as I know, haven't seen any fights in the aisles of the grocery store or the local Costco over basic commodities. But I suspect that it's not that far off. And here's what I would recommend. Hopefully, if you've been a longtime listener, you have, you know, certain preps already in place. You're never going to be perfectly prepared for every contingency. But if you've taken the time to put a few things aside for a rainy day, rest easy. Don't panic. You can make do with a lot less, and so can I. We can all make do with a lot less than we think we need to keep our lives comfortable and predictable. So instead of rushing down to the grocery store, the first chance you get and, you know, you know, trying to worm your way in through the crowd and, you know, throwing elbows here and there to try to get whatever's left of, you know, the the canned goods. Just take a few deep breaths. In fact, if you haven't done an inventory or an assessment of of where you are with your preps, this is probably a good time to look before you go out there and start panic buying whatever, you know, is available. What's this wadded beef? I don't know, but we better grab a few cans of it. It's all that's left on the shelf. Don't let panic rule your life. You probably have a bigger support system than you think. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about who really benefits when moral panic sets in. It's a fascinating article from Psychology Today, and we'll be back with it right after these messages on Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Please hold your calls until the next hour. We have so much territory to cover, and and I hopefully have some great thought-provoking material for you to uh, to help get you through whatever it is that collectively we are going through at this moment. And it's it's a lot of uncertainty. And that, it, look, the the best advice I ever received. This was right after getting uh, shown the door from a job that uh, you know the the dismissal came very unexpectedly and just out of the blue. And as I sat there pondering my next move, my good friend Eric Mutso sent me a message and it just simply said, hey, when nothing is certain, anything is possible. Now, I realize, well, you mean it could get worse? Well, that's one possibility. It also means it could open up some doors that we may not have considered. I want to share an idea here from the, uh, this is from Psychology Today from Scott A. Bonn. 
Ph.D. Moral panic. Who benefits from public fear? Consider what he has to say and use this to keep some perspective on what's going on around us. He says the criminological concept known as moral panic offers valuable insights into how and why powerful social agents such as the news media and the police deliberately create public concern or fear of an individual or group. Now, moral panic, he says, has been defined as a situation in which public fears and state interventions greatly exceed the objective threat posed to society by a particular individual or group who is or are claimed to be responsible for creating the threat in the the first place. The moral panic concept was developed and popularized by South African criminologist Stanley Cohen when he explained the public reaction to disturbances by youths called mods and rockers at seaside resorts in Brighton, England during the 1960s. Cohen's work illustrated how those reactions influenced the formation and enforcement of social policy, law, as well as societal perceptions of threats posed by the groups of youth. Since its inception, the moral panic concept has been applied to a wide range of social problems, including, but not limited to, youth gangs, school violence, child abuse, Satanism, wilding, flag-burning, illegal immigration, and terrorism. Central to the moral panic concept is an argument that public concern or fear over an alleged social problem is mutually beneficial to state officials, that is, politicians and law enforcement authorities, as well as the news media. The relationship between state officials and the media is symbiotic in that politicians and law enforcement need communication channels to distribute their rhetoric and the media needs tantalizing news content to attract a wide audience, which in turn attracts advertisers. Moral panics arise when distorted mass media campaigns are used to create fear, reinforce stereotypes and exacerbate pre-existing divisions in the world, often based on race ethnicity, and social class. In addition, Additionally, he says moral panics have three distinguishing characteristics. First, there is a focused attention on the behavior, whether it's real or imagined, of certain individuals or groups that are transformed into what Cohen referred to as folk devils by the mass media. And this is accomplished when the media strips these folks devils, folk devils rather, of all favorable characteristics and apply exclusively negative ones. I do believe they've tried to make President Trump into a folk devil. Second, he says, there is a gap between the concern over a condition and the objective threat it poses. Typically, the objective threat is far less than popularly perceived due to how it's presented by authorities. Third, there is a great deal of fluctuation over time in the level of concern over a condition. The typical pattern starts with the discovery of the threat, followed by a rapid rise and then peak in public concern which then subsequently and often abruptly subsides. And finally, public hysteria over over a perceived problem often results in the passing of legislation that is highly punitive, unnecessary, and serves to justify the agendas of those in positions of power and authority. So moral panic is both a public and a political response to an exaggeration or distortion of the threat posed to society by some allegedly harmful individual or group. More specifically, moral panic includes an exaggeration of certain events by enhancing the empirical criteria, such as the number of individuals involved, the level and extent of violence, and the amount of damage caused. Now, he says, of course, this is not something that happens spontaneously. 
but rather as a result of the complex dynamics and interplay among several social actors. Now, as originally explained by Cohen, at least five sets of social actors are involved in a moral panic. Tell me if any of these sound like the usual suspects. These include folk devils, rule or law enforcers, the media, politicians, and the public. First, in the lexicon of moral panic scholars, folk devils are those individuals who are socially defined or alleged to be responsible for creating a threat to society. Unlike some deviants, folk devils are completely negative. They're the embodiment of evil and the antagonists in a moral panic drama. Second, law enforcers, law enforcers rather, such as the police, prosecutors, or the military, are vital to a moral panic as they are charged with upholding and enforcing the codes of conduct and the official laws of the state. These agents of the state are expected to detect, apprehend, and punish the folk devils. Law enforcers have a sworn duty and moral obligation to protect society from folk devils when they present themselves. Furthermore, law enforcers must work to justify and maintain their positions in society. So a moral panic can offer law enforcers legitimacy and purpose by ridding society of folk devils that allegedly threaten its well-being. Third, the media are a particularly powerful set of actors in the creation of a moral panic. This is because typically news media coverage of certain events involving alleged folk devils is distorted or exaggerated. News coverage makes folk devils appear to be much more threatening to society than they really are. Public concern and anxiety are heightened by journalistic hyperbole concerning the folk devils. Public concern and anxiety over the folk devils lead to moral panic. If you have followed the Bundys, if you have followed the killing of Lavoie Finicum, this is what happened. And by the way, it, it involved all of the, all of the above. Law enforcers combined with media, Lavoy Finnegan was converted into a folk devil. Therefore, it was good that the Oregon State Police murdered him alongside the highway. Now, the article here points out that there were two important news media practices that contribute to moral panic. They're known as framing and priming. Framing refers to the way an issue is presented to the public or angle it's given by the news media. Framing involves calling attention to certain aspects of an issue while ignoring or obscuring other elements. In other words, framing gives meaning to an issue. In the case of the occupation of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, the framing was these are armed individuals taking over a federal wildlife refuge. And they focused on the armed, 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 armed. But was there any violence committed by these individuals who happened to be armed? The answer is no. Kind of convenient that they left that out of their framing of the news story. The article says Dr. Gay Tuchman pro proposed rather that the news media rely on news frames to determine what events to cover as well as how to cover them. And just as the photographer's choice of lens affects a photograph, the journalist's choice of news frame affects a story. Tuchman theorized that journalists select news frames for a story based in part on routine procedures and organizational constraints of their particular medium. In addition, the choice of frame is influenced by prior news frames, the power and authority of news sources, history, and even ideology. Thus, news frames are contested or negotiated phenomena rather than being based solely on objective events. And most importantly, he points out here, an audience will react very differently to an issue or story depending on how it is framed 
by the news media. All right, I'm going to pause here because I've got more that I want to come back to. We'll come back and talk about the priming. But again, the framing of the story. Think about the Covington High School kids just a little over a year ago. Pro-life rally at the Lincoln Memorial and the, the kid, Nick Sandman, standing there smiling as this American Indian activist walked up banging a drum in his face. How that story was framed made him a pariah when, in fact, he had done nothing wrong. If anything, it should cause you to question just how objective the news media is really being. We'll take a quick break. This is Loving Liberty. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Please hold your calls until the next hour. That's when we'll open up the phone lines. I'm sharing an article from Psychology Today about moral panic and who benefits from public fear. We've been talking about how the news media is one of the actors in creating moral panic. And one of the ways they do this is through the way they frame their news stories. The second way that they do this is through priming. Now, the article says, in contrast, priming is a psychological process whereby news media emphasis on a particular issue not only increases the salience of the issue on the public agenda, but it also activates previously acquired information about that issue in people's memories. So the priming mechanism explains how the news frame used in a particular story can trigger an individual's pre-existing attitudes, beliefs, and prejudices regarding that issue. Now, an example of priming would be the triggering of varied individual responses, such as outrage or pity, to the framing of Dr. Conrad Murray, Michael Jackson's accused killer and personal physician, during his 2011 manslaughter trial. Given the news media's prior framing of the legendary Michael Jackson as eccentric and as a, as a troubled genius, people naturally had different reactions to the framing of Dr. Murray due to their own individual interpretations of the image of Michael Jackson. Fourth, politicians are also vital actors in a moral public panic drama. As elected officials who must operate in the court of public opinion, politicians must present themselves as the protectors of the moral high ground in society. Similar to law enforcers, politicians have a sworn duty and moral obligation to protect society from folk devils when they arise. Politicians often fuel a moral panic by aligning themselves with the news media and law enforcers in a moral crusade against the evils introduced by the folk devils. Again, reference Malheur. 2016, and you'll see this in spades. In other instances, the article says, such as the U.S. war on drugs launched in the late 1980s, a key politician such as Ronald Reagan may define the folk devils, that is, urban crack cocaine dealers, and precipitate a moral panic over the evils of crack cocaine and alleged threats that these evils present. The fifth and final set of actors, the public, is actually the most important player in the creation of a moral panic. Public agitation or concern over the folk devils is the central element of a moral panic. A moral panic only exists to the extent that there is an outcry from the public over the alleged threat posed by the folk devils. Moreover, Scott Bond says the success of politicians, law enforcers and the media in precipitating and sustaining a moral panic is ultimately contingent upon how successfully they fuel concern and outrage toward the folk devils among the public. 
And then he asks for input. He says, can you think of a recent social phenomenon that can be considered a moral panic? Well, he says, I'd like to hear from you. I'll have this link posted on the website. I'll have it with the show notes. That is possibly one of the most valuable stories I have read within recent memory. And I think it would be wise to uh, keep an eye out for this sort of stuff. You know, COVID-19 is the thing that's got everybody's attention right now. But I promise you, if you can start to recognize these patterns as they're being used by the media, by law enforcement, by politicians, you will be a lot tougher to manipulate through the medium of fear. Speaking of fear, came across a great commentary from Thomas L. Knapp. Coronavirus, politically created panic, is the real pandemic. And based on what my wife reported to me after returning from the grocery store last night, I'd have to agree with him. Thomas Knapp says, as of early March, there were fewer than 200 confirmed cases of the COVID-19 coronavirus in the United States. Nonetheless, Congress passed and U.S. President Donald Trump signed an $8.3 billion emergency funding bill theoretically related to containing the disease. Had the federal government done nothing at all, the beer flu might have conceivably ended up killing a tiny fraction of the number of Americans who will die of influenza during the same period. But now that the federal government is blowing $8.3 billion, the chances of that happening will likely decrease, not because coronavirus will kill fewer people, but because influenza will kill more. Attention paid to and resources thrown at victims of the predictable annual flu epidemic will decrease in favor of the minor but newly lucrative COVID-19 nuisance. Yes, he says, nuisance. Even the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, a big beneficiary of health panics, says that information so far suggests that most COVID-19 illness is mild, especially among those without underlying serious health problems. They also say that the virus is not currently spreading widely in the United States, and that for most of the American public who are unlikely to be exposed to this virus at this time, the immediate health risk from COVID-19 is considered low. But then Thomas Knapp asks this question, so why are people losing their minds? You know the answer, right? In a word, politics. Congress and the president are throwing $8.3 billion worth of gasoline onto an already raging fire of unjustified panic. Ram, Ram Emanuel's law, never let a serious crisis go to waste. Every politician's corollary, even if you have to manufacture that crisis, out of whole cloth. Look, the bottom line here is that panic kills people. And politicians are just fine with that as long as it increases their stature among and power over the survivors. So Thomas L. Knapp says at this point, the main protective measure I recommend is laying in a couple of weeks worth of food and water, not because you need to stay home to avoid the coronavirus, but because the panic might result in shortages or even idiotic government measures like mass quarantines. And having some food and bottled water around is always a good idea anyway. He says, if it makes you feel better to avoid travel in large crowds, well, wear a mask when you can't avoid those things and wash your hands 20 or 80 times a day, rather. Knock yourself out. But above all, he says, stay calm and be aware that you're just going through self-comforting motions. Politicians, not viral nuisances, are the biggest threat to your survival. Now, this makes so much sense to me. There's a part of me that wants to think, you know, this this should all be self-evident. But I have to admit, even as much as, as I'm feeling like, well, you know, I'm trying to be rational about this and I'm trying to think clearly and independently, 
I find myself fighting back that little spasm of fear that says, well, maybe maybe you should run down to the grocery store and, and just, you know, grab a few extra things. I'm having to force myself not to. And I guess my point here is not that, you know, I'm, I'm superhuman and therefore none of this affects me. My point is that in spite of the fact that I'm aware of it, in spite of the fact that I am prepared, I have no reason to rush to the grocery store and make a panic buy. I still find myself being tempted to yield to the fear just in case. And if it can happen to me with full awareness and even being on guard for that manipulation by fear, I suspect it would happen pretty easily to people who may not be as aware and looking for it. It's insidious stuff. It's, it's, it's humbling to realize what an effective lever fear can become, especially when you're facing the unknown. And, and of course, one of the big unknowns about this coronavirus is how bad is it really? All the information that's coming at us from all the various sources and all the, the social media commentary. Remember what everybody was constitutional experts last week, and now they're, they're all infectious diseases experts? It's hard to know who to believe. So I try to take in as much information as I can and then make my best judgment. To, yeah, there, there is some, you know, gut feeling involved here. But the highest priority for me right now is don't embrace the fear. And maybe maybe I'm being self-defeating by even, you know, bringing it up. Well, you know, Brian, by saying that, it's like saying, don't think of an elephant. Oh, crap, I just thought of an elephant. I do think it's essential that we keep, or at least try to maintain, perspective. Otherwise... I think you're going to see a stampede, maybe a literal one, depending on whether you're in Costco at the moment, but definitely a figurative one of people stampeding into the arms of experts, most of whom happen to work or receive a government paycheck, who will have all the answers for us. And all it's going to require is, hey, all you need to do is just give up a little bit more of your freedom and we will make you feel safe. We will make you feel secure. We will assure you that we are doing everything in our power to protect you. And the kicker is, I think there are probably some well-intentioned people who are coming from that angle, but it's impossible. It is not possible for government to give us perfect protection in every instance. In fact, when we come back to the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit about, is it constitutional? Is it, is it proper for government to restrict travel as a matter of a public health emergency? Judge Andrew Napolitano has an excellent commentary on this very subject, and uh, and it may surprise you, maybe it won't surprise you to know that he's not necessarily one of the biggest defenders of President Trump. Some people are saying, oh, Trump is doing exactly the right thing in shutting down travel between the U.S. and Europe. But I'm more concerned with uh, what is the proper role of government? What does the Constitution say about such things? We'll check on that, just the other side of these commercial messages.
Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. And let's take a little bit of time here to talk about uh, whether government can restrict travel to protect public health. I know that there there was a lot of incredulity on Twitter last night. Facebook was blowing up. As soon as uh, President Trump announced, look, we're going to stop travel between Europe and the U.S. for 30 days until we can get a handle on the spread of uh, COVID-19. And and some people were, were cheering it. Oh, this is exactly what we need to do. We should have done it a long time ago. We've got to lock this thing down, or so they would say. Um, others are saying, wait a minute. Is this, is this legitimately something government can and should do? It's a question I think most of us are going to have to ask ourselves and possibly answer for ourselves at some point. But I want you to hear Judge Napolitano's take on this. This was published today on LewRockwell.com. Can the government restrict travel to protect public health? For what it's worth, here is Judge Andrew Napolitano's take. He says the issue of whether government in America can quarantine persons against their will, ostensibly for their own health and that of others with whom they may come in contact, requires a dual analysis. So one analysis has to be of the powers of the federal government and the other of the powers of the states. For constitutional analysis purposes, since local and regional governments derive their powers from the states in which they're located, the analysis of state powers pertains to them as well. So he says, we begin our analysis with the observation of the truism that freedom is the default position. The language of the Declaration of Independence, as well as various amendments in the Bill of Rights, unambiguously reflects the views that those who wrote ratified and amended the Constitution, recognized that our rights to think, speak, publish, worship, defend ourselves, travel, own property, be left alone, are natural to our humanity. What that means is these rights pre-existed government. Their source is our humanity. Government doesn't grant these rights. Rather, its primary purpose, as stated in the Declaration of Independence, its sole purpose is to protect these rights. Now, Judge Napolitano says, though the courts have interpreted the Constitution to possess lamentable exceptions, the framers and ratifiers of the Constitution arguably accepted the non-aggression principle articulated in the modern era by the late Professor Murray Rothbard, which declares that all aggression against persons and property, even by government, is immoral. In the case of the federal government, it is one of limited delegated powers. Now, of course, 230 years of legislation and litigation have blown its powers outside the confines of the Constitution and invariably in the direction of expanding federal power at the expense of personal liberty and the states. So the states formed the federal government, not the other way around. Yet today, the feds stay in power by bribing the states with cash grants, the rich with bailouts, the middle class with tax cuts and the poor with transfer payments. Notwithstanding all this, Judge Napolitano says the courts continue to recognize the concept of personal liberty in a free society. So all of this is background to the issue lurking under the headlines this week. Can the government quarantine people without proof of contagion and imminent assault? He says the short answer is no. We know that under the Fifth Amendment, if any government, whether it be state or federal, wants to impair the life, liberty or property of any person... It has to follow due process, and due process has two components, substantive and procedural. The substantive component asks if the impairment of liberty is proper to the government that seeks the impairment. The procedural component asks if the impairment has come about fairly. Now, back to what the feds can do 
and what the states can do in a public health crisis. Napolitano says there are no emergency provisions or triggers in the Constitution, yet Congress gave itself the power to regulate public health and safety under various pretexts. These pretexts exist because the nanny state urge of members of Congress to regulate is confronted by the reservation in the Tenth Amendment of health and safety to the states. Those pretexts are regulating commerce and all that affects commerce and paying the states to do Congress's will. Stated differently, he says the Supreme Court has ruled that both the federal government and the states can confine a person who has not committed a crime or one who has but served one's full sentence in order to protect society from the person's intentional or uncontrollable harmful tendencies. Now, it is contrary to the plain meaning of the Constitution for Congress to give itself powers that were not delegated to it by the Constitution. But the courts have permitted this. Yet even in the case of a lunatic who's committed a crime and served his full sentence but remains dangerous, the courts have, re- have recognized constitutional safeguards to protect his natural rights. So, back to the question of whether the government, state or federal, can confine persons against their will in order to protect public health. Now, the short answer is yes, but the Constitution requires procedural due process. So that means a trial for every person confined. So a government-ordered quarantine, for instance, of all persons in a city block or a postal zip code or a telephone area code would be an egregious violation of due process, both substantive and procedural. Substantively, he says, no government in America has the lawful power to curtail natural rights by decree. Well, that's kind of reassuring. Procedurally, though, he says, notwithstanding the fear of disease contagion, the states and feds may only quarantine those who are actively contagious and will infect others imminently. And it, meaning the state, must present evidence of both at a trial at which it bears the burden of proof. So while the non-aggression principle permits offensive aggression in self-defense when an attack is imminent and certain, that's a high standard for the government to meet, as it should be. Freedom, even the freedom of a madman or a dangerously sick and contagious person, is the default position. Infringing upon it without procedural due process is always constitutionally impermissible. Judge Napolitano says the Constitution was not written for the government to right every wrong. We know that government itself causes most wrongs, the theft of property by taxation, the impairment of economic liberty by regulation, the slaughter of innocents by war, the infringement of expressive liberties by majority vote. Yet the Constitution still mandates an extracting and exacting rather due process for all whom the government would restrain. That means a trial before any quarantine, no matter the public danger and a fair trial, not one animated by mass hysteria or government-generated fear. Okay, just speaking for myself, I think that's actually a pretty reasonable approach. I think the judge may have the right balance here of protecting the public safety, but at the same time, not running roughshod over the rights of the individual, particularly the natural rights of the individual, in that uh, rush to make ourselves safe from some perceived threat. Now, whether or not our government at the state or at the uh, federal level are likely to observe this, well, that's anybody's guess at this point. If I were a betting man, I'd say, yeah, probably not. Probably not. But it's something that, uh, that nonetheless needs to be considered. One final thought here in our last few minutes. Um, had a conversation with a friend today. 
and and of course we were talking about coronavirus and and he was doing his best not to sneak peeks at the uh, television screen showing what was happening with the Dow Jones uh you know status um it's it, there's a lot of uh, repercussions happening right now because of travel bans because of of companies you know voluntarily restricting travel and and you know, trying to uh, self-quarantine or at least minimize any exposure to disease. And Peter Quinones, writing for LibertarianInstitute.org, says the unspoken fear of coronavirus, and I think he nails this, is not so much that it's going to make us sick or it's going to make us die. He says the, the, the scariest thing that most Americans are feeling, the dread that is, is in their hearts right now, is how am I going to be able to, to, to work? Or what happens if I can't work for an extended period of time? And it's, it's the understanding that most of us live paycheck to paycheck, or at least a lot closer to paycheck to paycheck than we would like to. Some of the statistics he shares, nearly one in 10 workers making $100,000 plus still live paycheck to paycheck. Nearly one in four workers don't set aside any savings each month. Three in four workers say that they are in debt. More than half think that they always will be. More than half of minimum wage workers say they have more work that to work more than one job just to make ends meet. And 28 percent of workers who make between 50,000 and 100,000 dollars usually or always live paycheck to paycheck. Seventy percent of them are in debt. If you thought the uh, bad news was the coronavirus, that's uh, that's the real bad news that underlies the bad news. And so with with some of the. Uh, repercussions that will come from, look, you know, basketball season has been canceled now. My friend loves sports, loves baseball, says there's a very good possibility. Maybe we're going to see the uh, the baseball season canceled or at the very least postponed. I don't know what the future holds. But in addition to temporal preps of having food and water and toilet paper stashed away, hopefully most of us have some kind of a rainy day fund or some kind of a contingency to work from home if necessary. That's not going to be possible for everybody. So that means that we may have to put our heads together to find some solutions. I'm seriously doubting there are going to be any really easy ones. Hour two is just around the corner.